نون قرد آنجی کز لنگ پیخ کن لنگ ری Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me is the brilliant William Annis of LearnNotMe.org. <laughs> Hi. I'm still hoping to be lovely someday, but okay. <laughs> Maybe I should have called you lovely because Bianca's not here. Right. By the way, Bianca, there's nothing... Uh, uh, Bianca has a bad cold and can barely talk, and she would be coughing the whole episode. So we're doing an episode without Bianca. And since Bianca hates poetry, we scrambled at the last minute to put together the poetry episode. Yes. Because she wouldn't even entertain... uh, putting it putting it in an episode she hates it so much but we both like it <laughs> <laughs> so since we've already mentioned our topic why don't we drill into this so poetry i'd say poetry is something fairly advanced and you're going to have to involve sort of a little bit of con culture when you're doing poetry and But basically, the, the point of poetry is it's art with words. It's you have certain traditional constraints that you work with or different sort of ways of manipulating language to make a certain kind of art form. And uh, so, William, you listed down all these different things that you can do with um, with poetry. All these different things that can be used to to formulate poetic styles. Sure. Um, my favorite description of well, the one, the first thing I want to say is that poetry can affect language across multiple levels or it can use language differently from normal day-to-day speaking in different parts of the language. It might use weird vocabulary. It might use weird syntax. It might use weird morphology. Um, it might do strange things with your sound system or even deform words in funky ways. So there's, there's just so much going on there apart from what you know English speakers are used to which is just rhymes and 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 maybe strange syntax to to make the meter work and the other thing as you touched on this the question of con cultural aspects what we write poetry about and notice that i've said right there which is a little bit artificial to start with what we produce poetry about differs pretty radically from culture to culture mm-hmm. um There's this magnificent and horrible collection of short occasional poetry covering several hundred years of um, 
Greek literature called the Greek Anthology. It's got more than a thousand poems. And every conceivable subject is touched on. <laughs> complaining about somebody whose wine is bad um, a difficult girlfriend or boyfriend politics um, there's an entire section complaining about people having large noses <laughs> um, bad breath they're gassy I mean every conceivable thing topic became uh, an acceptable subject for poetry uh huh. And some that we can't even talk about because we're not doing the 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 taboo language episode. Oh yes. Well, um, yeah. If you listen to that, you know one of those things. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So there's just this is. Whereas in in other in American culture, especially well, let's 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 break off in in English speaking culture up to about a hundred years ago. There are a lot of topics that you would not touch on in poetry. These days, that's less often the case, that there are subjects that you wouldn't do. Um, so that's one of the things, too. Think about you know, why people might write poems if you're actually creating a culture for, for, for this language. right? Because the, the sort of poems traditionally tr- produced in Japan are quite different from the poems traditionally produced in Greece, which are quite different from the poems traditionally produced in you know, Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And That's... then the other... Oh, well, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. The the other con culture thing to worry about is what... Who is a poet? All up and down the Indo-European zone, from India to Ireland, the poet was kind of a scary guy. He was probably the highest paid profession. Um up until you know a few centuries after the the beginning of the the iron age at least and mystical magical powers are attributed to them all across the indo-european sphere you could hear about poem poets who get ticked off by somebody and write a satire that causes the person either to die from mortification or to kill themselves from embarrassment <laughs> Right, yeah. ha- we got poems about this in India, Greece, ancient Greece, and the the the, the Celtic poets were were similarly dangerous. Um, in old Irish culture, some poets were lawyers; they were the repository of traditional knowledge. They weren't just sitting around under the trees writing love songs. You know, they were the transmitters of culture and custom and law. Yeah, um, in. Chinese culture, at least especially after the Tang Dynasty, uh, you had basically any government, any uh, of the officials would also be poets because it was uh, poetry was actually on the uh, on the exams. exams. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in China and Japan. It was expected, and to a certain degree, I think in in um, Victorian England, it was expected that a well-educated gentleman would be able to produce verse. Yes. So all of these things are different. Um, uh, we're so used to this idea of muses, but the ancient Greek muses are pretty funny. First of all, their name, the very word muse, is related to the root for the word memory. 
So, right, they're, they're transmitters. Second of all, um, they're they're not as friendly <laughs> as modern sort of romantic notions of the muses would have. One of my favorite examples is Hesiod, who was you know somewhere around Homer, give or take a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Talks about him getting you know getting that laurel branch and being inspired with poetry, and the first thing the muses do when they see him is they're incredibly rude to him. They make fun of humans, you miserable wretches. Um, and then they say, and we can say true or false things, you know, however we feel. <laughs> okay. Right. So this is, this is part of that sort of ambiguous situation they stand in. Yeah. So um, I, I guess. Why don't we actually move on to, to the more formal stuff, right? Get yeah, the mechanics of it. My favorite definition of verse comes from Roman Jakobson, who is a Russian structural linguist. And he said that verse is equivalence is promoted to the constitutive device of the sequence. See, isn't that clear? It's all over. Everything is clear. We can just move on. Yeah. That's kind of enigmatic. Yes. But what he's talking about is equivalence is promoted to the device of the sequence. Equivalence. Some feature in the language is picked, and it is decided that some kinds of that feature are equivalent, some kinds are not. In English, it's rhyme. It's that vowel sound becomes equivalent. Mm-hmm. Or in a more complex rhyme, vowel, consonant, you know, all of that. In um, Chinese verse, like tangshi or things like that, syllables... That's the equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. So a tangshu has five or seven syllables per line always. Yeah, Tung- and I want to talk about tangshu later because it's a, there's so much complexity in that. But- right. So in addition to that, um, pretty much any linguistic feature you can imagine can be one of these equivalences. Stress, rhyme, assonance, alliteration, syllable weight. That is, is the syllable have a long vowel or a short vowel? Is the, vowel, is the syllable open or closed? Accents. You can do grammatical or syntactic repetitions, and we'll, we can give an example of that when we talk about the ancient Near Eastern stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, repetition, antithesis, which is very common in Semitic verse, are also things that can be repeated and changed, and we'll give examples of that. Typically, a verse system is going to mix and match these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... so Syllable counting, like the the poems of uh, France, typically are strictly syllable counting, like the the troubadours. All of that stuff was syllable counted, in addition to rhyme. And we've already mentioned Chinese verse. Japanese verse is not actually syllable counting; it's uh, mora counting. Oh, really? So the definition you've always heard of a haiku is wrong because <laughs> a syllable isn't the same thing as a as a as a syllable count. Uh. Um, and uh, I was going to say tongue. So the old Irish poetic system, practically any linguistic feature you can conceive of, was used in poems. Uh, the most sophisticated old Irish poetry is 
it's frankly baffling to me anyone can produce it. You have assonance, you have alliteration, you have syllable counting, you have required um, alliteration, you have internal rhymes in addition to the line rhymes, you have certain sounds that occur at the end of one line have to be repeated at the beginning of the next line, and the first line and the last line of every poem must have a common word or syllable. Okay, that really... See, I was going to talk about Tangshi as an example of a very rigid and complex system, but that blows it out of the water. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty yeah. bonkers. Yeah, it's astonishing. All of the tricks that the Irish do pop up in other forms of poetry, like ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. There, the the system is rhythmic patterns of long and short syllables with various kinds of tricks to modify things. But they also, certain of the archaic poets especially, do tricks with alliteration, do tricks with funky internal, um, not end rhymes, but end patterns. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing probably that if you want to make a realistic poetic tradition... I mean, if you just want to write a few poems, that's one thing. But if you want a realistic poetic tradition, your culture will have multiple poetic forms. So you can even mix and match these these things into several different forms for your language. Right. I mean, it's... Uh, it, so that's one of the interesting things. is hierarchical cultures tend to have advanced um, literary cultures or advanced verse cultures. It's really important to, to, to drive this home. The ancient Greeks were producing astonishingly sophisticated poetry before their appearance on the world stage. They're making crappy pottery and, and crappy tools at the same time, they were producing mind-bogglingly sophisticated and elegant poetry. Wow. <laughs> and that's because the poet had an important job in the culture, and it had an important job in spreading the fame and reputation of the aristocrats, the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, so you, you have this job, this profession that develops, and then formal things start to appear. Homer has all of these very uh, common formulaic phrases that appear at the beginnings and ends of verse lines. They fit there nicely, they're formulaic, and he can throw that in while he thinks up the rest of the line. And over time, these systems become really, really complex. I actually don't like reading poetry from the most advanced period of a civilization because you cannot understand it without understanding everything that came before. Contemporary Chinese poetry, contemporary Arabic poetry, contemporary Persian poetry is almost impossible unless it frees itself from the shackles of tradition because unless you've read the previous thousand or two thousand years, you don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Well... Definitely. For one thing, if you read like traditional Tang poetry in Chinese, for one thing, you have to understand classical Chinese to read it. Sure. 
<laughs> What's that? that hard? I think I think Tang poetry is easier to read than Tang prose or really? Chinese prose. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Well, I don't know any classical, so it's completely lost uh-uh. on me. Uh-uh. So, <laughs> but it is that is an inter- that's a separate issue to deal it's... with register and formality and what the written standard is, but yeah, it's very um, and one thing I wanted to note is the structure and the your phonology and morphology of your language can affect which of these various things can um, the these various orders you can apply. Right. For example, in my opinion, English works much better with meter than with syllable counts. And that's kind of reflected in that a lot of English poetry uses meter and metrical feet rather than syllables. Um, in my opinion, English is actually a combination of syllable counting and meter watching. Uh, w- the really good example of what English is bad at is um, uh, the sort of poetry that happens in Greek and Latin, syllable weights. Uh, yes. People try to do that, and there's just nothing there to grab. Because English, English, you can... doesn't have long and short having... vowels. I mean, it has long and yeah. short vowels, but they're conditioned phonemically. Yeah. We don't attend to that distinction in words. Yeah. We don't really, we don't really care about it, so it's hard to... Right. to write it. Doesn't stop people from trying, but the results, are, I think, are not very successful. Another thing I was noting, and this is sort of after you've already worked on poetry a little bit that you'd figure this out, but different languages have different ways, at least languages, some languages, uh, Chinese doesn't need it because they just count the characters and that's the syllables, but say... Uh, there's ways of fudging your meter or your syllable counts. Like English, in English, there's a lot of all these alighted um, words like air instead of ever and all that. Sure. And then Spanish, you blend the vowels, which is actually something that occurs in normal speech is vowels blend with each other across word boundaries and come become almost diphthongs. And also, you change the syllable count in Spanish according to where stress falls on the final syllable. Right. And uh, I'm sure you can figure out, find some other examples that I'm not aware of, Will. Yeah, no. The longer a poetic tradition exists, the more stunts people come up with. So when I talked about that equivalence that's promoted to the constitution. Of the sequence, that equivalence can get fudged. In in some versions, in, in different kinds of ancient Greek poetry, and this is true of Arabic poetry and and of um, I think even Hausa follows these patterns, right? You've got long syllables and short syllables. In some places, if you 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 have to put a long syllable, you can also put two short syllables as being most more or less equivalent. Hmm. Yeah. That's a long syllable, right? So you can do various tricks. Um, it, you talked about that vocabulary. That's really 
quite common too is you have a special vocabulary for poems and that it's only used in poems now that source can be different um in some languages you might pick up features of other dialects which were considered more prestigious or it was thought that the songs from there were better mm. so a lot so a lot of arabic pop singers sing in the dialect of cairo even though they're not from there mm. um you might have really old grammatical forms homer is notorious for preserving words that don't even fit the meter anymore but because that's where the phrase goes he keeps using it that's kind of like anyone who wants to write we were talking about tang poetry in china today uh a lot of people say that if you have to write, want to write it today you have to actually look up what the rhymes would have been in right. classical chinese right Right. Rather than using and, a modern dialect. And what the old tones were, since, you know, Tangshi is not just regulated by syllables, but there are tone patterns that matter. Oh, yeah. You have to look up what words had yin and yang tones because... And not the modern tones either, but tones of a, of a millennium ago. Yeah, that's a very... <laughs> so that's a very sort of artificial tones preservation. Tones that don't exist anymore in some, some right. Right. languages. So one of my favorite examples of these formal systems is there's a, a style of uh, a poetic form called the qasida which is used in Arabic and then it's sort of spread out and there's certain I think it's the qasida it could be another one I have a friend who, who who went to school in Saudi for a while when she was a kid and they were reading one of these poems and you start off praising the quality of the camel that has been given to you by your local prince um <laughs> And then you move on to other topics. Then you talk about, you know, your beloved, who you're so happy that you got this camel so you can go see. And my poor friend, the the transition from one section to the next was vague. So at one point, her and a friend were concerned to know if he was praising the camel or his girlfriend. <laughs> Is he still talking about the camel? I don't I, – I hope not, you know. But, you know, there are things in in – in the Japan, in the traditional Japanese haiku form, there are words called kigo that you must mention. Words that have an association with seasons, or there are some other non-seasonal kigo as well. So, this develops in these. You know, if your culture, if your con culture has a long history of this sort of thing, then you you might want to think about you know a sophisticated audience who's heard a lot of poetry already and who has expectations of their poets. Yeah. And that depends on... That depends on whether the form is for the, uh, say, the quote-unquote highborn or for the the regular people in the street. Sure, sure. Um, but, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we've been talking a lot about really obvious sort of linguistic features, syllables, rhyme, alliteration, um, vowel length. But that's not the only thing that you could base a poetic system on. You might have very free-flowing lines um, and instead work with different things. 
um, really common in the ancient Near East was you'd have these parallel lines for two or three repetitions with slight variations and then with the last line of the variations, you know, sort of ending out that little stanza and you're moving on to the next. So I have a little section here from Gilgamesh. If, should I read that? Yeah, go ahead and read it. So, you want me to. This is just a translation. On the third day, they reached the appointed field. There, the hunter and the ensnarer rested at their seat. One days, two days, they lurked at the entrance to the well, where the cattle were accustomed to slake their thirst, where the creatures of the waters were sporting. Then came Enkidu, whose home was the mountains, who with gazelles ate herbs, who with the cattle slaked his thirst, and with the creatures of the waters rejoiced his heart. So there you go. We've had two examples of that with three lines that sort of, you start off with one, and then the following one sort of expands on it a little bit, and the next one expands on it even a little bit more. Okay, I see. I think I tried to do this with a conlang. I was writing uh, something poetic, and I tried to do that sort of, um, there was like a statement first, and then three lines that repeated each other, kind of. Right. In this way. Right. So equivalence and variation is the secret of poetry. In this particular case, the equivalence is the syntactic structure and mm-hmm. the meaning even. Um, within systems like this, antithesis is very common mm-hmm. where you, you say – well, here's an example from the Bible. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Mm-hmm. Same idea, repeated in two different ways. Yeah, or rather, the the first part of it is is opposed in order right. to emphasize right, right, two different qualities. Um, one thing I wanted to also mention is, uh, you might ask, well, I don't want to write any any poems at all. But I'd say if you if you want to write any kind of music, if you want to write, I mean, if you want to write vocal music in your conlang, you need poetry, because music uses poetic forms in order to form the structure of the of the stanzas and verses. Yep. Uh, so. In those, syllable counting matters more. Although the syllables you count don't have to be normal. I mean, in Western music, we're so used to the the fixed four time or the three time. But, you know, in, in the Near East, these things might have five or seven or nine or all sorts of possibilities are available there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think basically... Probably I'll look for some resources on different poetic devices just to link to here because there this is another thing where there are so many things that we couldn't just like list down okay, rhyme, alliteration, all that stuff. Um and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and define each one. You probably need to do a little research yourself. But um one thing I want to mention but uh, I want to go back to what I was saying in, in uh, what poetic devices work. Um, 
depends on how your language is structured. Uh, I wanted to, like, uh, I have an example. Um, so I have the language I'm working on now, Ayurio, which I haven't worked out any poetry for, but one decision I've already made is I won't use rhyme because in Ayurio, every noun, every verb, every adjective has uh, required affixes and like to a certain point adding rhyme would just be very similar to structural parallelism and just rhyming would get boring because it has required suffixes on everything. Mm-hmm. So it might that's that's one th- that's just both the phonology and the the um, the morphology needs to be considered sometimes. Sure. So in Arabic poetry, in part with a little help from the grammar, but with other things, it is not uncommon to see a strict rhyme scheme for an entire poem that encompasses the final three syllables. Mm-hmm. And those poets have no problem at all relying on a grammatical equivalence to make that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas... Because... Because of the the triconsonantal system. Well, it's not the triconsonantal system. It's just some of the normal morphology of a verb might – it can get quite hefty on a verb depending on on what you're doing. Um, Whereas that sort of trick would be considered a little bit vulgar in in another language. It would be quite insane to try to do with English. You'd almost have to do exactly the same word on the English. Yeah, that w- it would be very hard in English. Partly because uh-huh. English because English being a northern European language has a ridiculous number of vowels. <laughs> Arabic has three. <laughs> this is true. So But but to do but for example to do that stunt in Esperanto is considered tasteless. Well, very, it would be very easy to do in Esperanto, but it's discouraged. <laughs> Well, the, the, that's another issue that that was that would have that would have made it ba- weird with my language because Esperanto, you have your obligatory suffixes for noun, adjective, and verb, so it would it would kind of get annoying, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so we've not even talked about the vast array of literary techniques, simile, metaphor, reference. Um, it seems to be common across the planet. It's not universal, but common for certain kinds of poetry to be really obscure. Mm-hmm. Like they use the, the full combination of old words and weird words and syntax and reference and all of that results in poems that are very hard to understand. We have a whole bunch of Aztec poems, which are practically impossible to decipher because... They rely on a tradition that, first of all, is gone. <laughs> Second of all, even compared to other poetry, for whatever reason, have decided to rely on archaic features. So it's, it's, it's very, very obscure. And some of the ancient um, Irish and Indian, uh, Vedic and Greek po- poets every once in a while just spouted this very, very difficult stuff. In fact, we even have a... a one of the Vedic hymns even includes a line that says, the gods love the obscure. 
<laughs> sort of their justification for, for writing poems no one could figure out. Well, you know. But it doesn't have to be that, right? Right? You can have poems that are perfectly clear in intent and purpose. Yeah. Uh, I could say probably if you have an intellectual class writing poetry that sees sees their their uh, quote-unquote superior intelligence as an important part, you might get a lot more of that obscure and near-undecipherable poetry. Yeah, if there's a culture of connoisseurship and, and so forth. Yeah, it does seem, and it's probably not an accident, that the Aztecs were a... a you know, a, an aristocratic culture. Mm-hmm. It does seem like, you know, just God save me from court poetry. <laughs> right? Unless you know every little thing that's going on, it's just not going to make any sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, 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 really not a fan of um, poetry after the Hellenistic period or even in the Hellenistic period. It's just... It's so intellectual and so scholarly and depends so much on having mastered everything that came before that there's really no pleasure in reading it. <laughs> so it's it's like it's 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 highbrow poetry. It's poetry for people who spend a lifetime studying. Right. right. Yeah. Um whereas, you know, you'll have clearer poetry and a phone is ringing. Um, you'll have clear poetry, maybe from sort of more plebeian poetic traditions, or even popular songs. Or sure. Something. Exactly. I don't know if I have anything else really to add. Do you have? Nope. It just uh, my interest today is to just open the possibility for. Especially a beginning con Langer who has not paid attention to, um, who hasn't paid much attention to languages off the beaten track, that there are lots of different ways to organize language into verse um, that don't involve rhyme. Yeah. Um, I think my final advice to say on this subject is when you are uh, working on poetic forms, for your language, number one, you do your research and and figure out, look at a few other languages and different different devices. Wikipedia is good on yeah, actually, on, it is pretty good on uh, poetic devices, and um, also, I'd say try things out in your language and see what feels feels good as poetic devices in your language. I mean, first first look at your, your phonology and your morphology and a little bit in syntax, but syntax can be fudged a lot in poetry. Um, yeah, you might have weird... Again, if you've got a long tradition, you might have these strange pieces of grammar that only occur in poetry because yeah. someone did it you know, a few hundred years ago and everyone said, oh, we should keep I've, doing it that I've way. I've seen some Spanish poetry that had bizarre word order that does not occur in the wild. Um, but basically, you know, look a little bit at your language and figure out, see, think about what 
devices would work well in them, and then try them out, write a poem, and see if the which which of those make you feel the best about the the poetry you're writing. And it doesn't have to be a good poem, right? In in pretty much after the the Romantic period, we have these very precious ideas about poetry in the West. And, you know, like I said, just go back to that list of everything the Greeks wrote poems about, bad breath, big noses, all that. Just if you really want to test the form, test it out on satires and, and little things like that, you know, complaining about the weather or whatever before moving on to, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's elevated. You do not have to... St- you do not have to start off writing depressing poetry about the 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 about nature like Tolkien's elves. Yeah, you can you can just start with the the cultural equivalent of dirty limericks and see what to just to see what devices work best. Sure. Yeah. Um so with that fairly thoroughly covered, I think we can yeah. move on to uh, our featured conlang for today, which is, um, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Kaylin or Kaylin? Um, in English, I think she calls it just Kalenian. Oh, really? But she, she spells it on here as, uh, K-E-Macron-L-E-N. So I think that's like Kaylin or something. So... Kalenian or Kalen or whatever you want to call call it. The main point of this language was see it was created by what's the name? Sylvia Sotomayor. Yep. And her main point was this is an experimental language. She wanted to create a language that has no verbs. Yep. As one of these experimental languages where I want to say where somebody says I want to make something that is unusual for a human language. And so she made one with no verbs at all. And sort of the centerpiece of making making this language work is her relationals. Yep. Which sort of... The, they allow her to not have verbs by having these sort of broken verbs type things. They're more more particles than anything else. Right. They specify the relationship between the noun phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, which is... Uh, yeah. So, uh, she started making this language because she read something in a linguistics course and said, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if she thought it was ridiculous, but that provided uh, a prompt <laughs> to... Uh, to, to, to create this language. Um, when I first read about it, I thought, well, this is highly bizarre and unnatural. Subsequently, I've learned about actual human languages that have maybe a dozen verbs, mm-hmm. maybe two dozen. That kind and, of... And everything else is handled by some sort of paraphrases with that small set of verbs and um, other sorts of words. Yeah. So that, she's sort of pushed I mean, from the standpoint of those languages, Kalenian is just a highly reduced version of one of those. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm getting here is that these relationals 
are basically just a closed and very small set of verbs. Uh, kind of. Kind of, but uh, they don't work exactly like verbs. No. They do. They do have some some inflections that that are reminiscent of verbs. The meanings are a little bit too general to really call them verbs sometimes. Right. However, um, they do take things like tense, mm-hmm. person marking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's an interesting language whether or not you want to accept that it's truly verbless or not. Well, for the sake of argument, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to concede that it's verbless. Mm-hmm. And that the sentence, the bowl is red, is represented with a sentence that means the bowl has redness. Yeah. Um, outside of her, outside of the, the main crux of it, of, of eliminating verbs, I like, um, I like some other things. I like the script that she designed. It's very reminiscent of Devanagari. Mm-hmm. Um, I think every script inventor has to produce something like that at some point in their careers. <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe. I think they do. It, the, the appeal is so obvious, and and it is. It is. It, it. I. I do like the the way it the way that that aesthetic works with the the horizontal line on top. Right. Uh. And uh, let's see. She doesn't give me a chart, but phonologically, it doesn't seem really that interesting. Right. The spelling is funky, which may be a source, you know, or uh, a consequence of its history. Mm-hmm. Um, the website, it's a very well-documented language. Yes, there's lots and lots of stuff in here. And I've only looked mainly at the relationals just just to to get the the main point of the language understood but she has a very she basically has her grammar set out as a a website and it's very let's look at and it's um, nice and and database driven so that her texts have interlinears where Everything's clickable so that, you know, you'll click on a word and it will take you to every example of that word being used. It's, it's very nicely laid out. Yeah. I like that she has a uh, kinship terms chart with a, a big giant family tree that explains that you can look up all the stuff. Holy cow, I didn't go there. That's a big one. Look at that. Yeah. Go- goodness. Looks like... Um, a whole lot of people are called cousin. But, uh, <laughs> wow! But that may just be a function of the the immensity of the chart that she made here. Um, she has oh, she has actually two writing systems: one that's just a regular, and one that's the ceremonial thing writing system that. Basically, you arrange it into what looks like, what looks sort of like um, Celtic, not work, not work, yeah. With, except it actually has meaning 
attached to it. So that's an interesting thing. So this is definitely very well thought out, very uh, well worked out language. Lots and lots of nice examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and lots of lots of examples, lots of lots of documentation. She has oh well, she has a lot of different um, texts, a lot of uh, translated texts. And that I think, for someone interested in how figuring out how this verblessness works out, is to go to that some translated texts area. And then at the bottom of a lot of the pages, she'll have an interlinear, and then you can just go and stare and figure out how things work. <laughs> yeah, um, so... Where's... Let me look at Northwind of the Sun. It'll be, oh, everyone loves that. that. That'll be... This is fairly easy. So... It starts out with concerning an argument, the north wind, the sun. This right. Is, so this is one of those places where her relationals are not entirely um, verb-like, because one of the relationals um, is it's it's just telling you that it introduces a topic. Wind, yeah, they're they're, they're introducing. Uh, well, there's a conjunction that in- introduces the the first thing, the concerning sure. argument, and then right. the north wind and the sun. Right. There's a relational that sort of vaguely notes that these two are the persistence in the argument, I guess. Well, no. The Let me find the page if I can. Um, the point is that this is – the relationals aren't single function. Uh-huh. Um, and she does a really good job of listing the different significances. And the, this one that we're talking about here is se, and mm-hmm. it's fairly complicated. Um, it's usually used for marking – it's called the transactional relational, and it's used for things like giving and receiving mm-hmm. um, benefactive senses. And she's really good about saying, you know, say plus noun phrase means this, say plus noun phrase plus this thing means another thing. And then the last one is say plus noun phrase, period, just says and the noun phrase is introduced. Ah, okay. So that, I think, is an interesting way to, to take these take take that on. So that's definitely not a verby behavior. I see. So they're not. So, basically, the the way that she eliminated verbs is to put in these things that actually, at first glance, they might actually look like verbs. But as you look deeper into them, they have so many different possible uses, and they're they're so vague and and um, and have so many uses that are not verb-like at all that you can't really call them verbs. Right. This is a very interesting way to to handle that. So, yeah. It kind of breaks your head to look at it. To look at her glosses. <laughs> a little bit. It can break your head, yeah. 
because you're you're looking at this and you're trying to figure out where um how she makes things mean anything and but yeah that, that that's the interesting part about this is it it's 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 not as mind bending as Ithquil, mm-hmm. but it certainly is a little. It's a little bit of a wrench there of the brain. Yeah, and that makes it I interesting think, and worthwhile. I think. I think looking at it, as as hard it is to get my head around just looking at it right here, I think someone could actually learn this language. Oh yes, absolutely. I think that's possible. Yeah. And Although like... I, I confess that the chart of inflections that sometimes appear a little bit scary. <laughs> oh, On there the are list? tables. She has tables, and sometimes they alarm me a little. <laughs> I mean, just uh, for, for the learner, there's a little bit of work there, and you know, uh, that's there's... you know, I've studied ancient Greek, right? So I shouldn't complain about tables, but <laughs> but yeah. But it's not so, so, like, it kind of is the exception to our rule. With Engelangs. Well, yeah, that that if you can think it up and someone can learn it, it probably exists in a nat lang. This, I have never heard of a natural language that has no verbs at all, but somehow this language has no verbs, and it looks like you could actually learn it. <laughs> Unlike Ithquil, which has yes. everything but is thus. <laughs> Ithquil or Lodgeban or um, what else can I think of? Logland. Well, that's is, which is which is basically the same language with different right. lexicon, but um, but yeah, it. I suggest looking at it. If you're a fan of these experimental conlangs, or if you're a fan of scripts, honestly, yeah. because uh, script design is very good. I will confess that I've known about Kellen Kalen for years and years and years, but because of the premise, I was I just it's like I don't like engineered languages. Why would I look at this? But uh, this is <laughs> so that was a mistake on my part to to not look at it for so long. It's, it does a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Interesting um, how how problems are approached when you've really taken to heart the rule, no verbs. Mm-hmm. And she even has built a little bit of a con culture around it too. So, uh, some I don't. Uh, uh just a little bit. It's yeah, not... no, I think there used to be more, but I I'm feeling the details of that. Mm-hmm. Um, she also does a blog. Of the Kalen word of the day, which has gone on for a long time. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. Which it's interesting. And the requirement has pictures of cats on Fridays. <laughs> well, um, interestingly, uh, I'm looking at this, and it's not just she gives you the word and a definition, but he she gives you the word and the definition and one or two examples. Or so, more. Yeah, no, it's it's great. Yeah, it's a it's a cool way to explore the the language to look look through this blog, and uh, of course, you have that is linked off of her site, so you know it's all in one place. 
and she has a searchable dictionary. She's got all... Isn't she moving someone else's Conlang into a into a web application format. I think she's 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 she does web development. Yes, I Heart PHP. There's <laughs> a blog of her helping people, you know, come to terms with making their their Conlang web pages dynamic rather than static. Oh, I see. <laughs> that would be. Um, interesting for her to 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 see more of those. But yeah, no, it'd be. Uh, I'm still. I'm always torn. A really nice electronic presentation of a language is great, and she, and she has done a great version. The mm-hmm. instant you go to those interlinears, you've got cross-link vocabulary, and the dictionary gives examples of this. It's it's everything I would want out of an electronic conlang. Mm-hmm. That said, I still prefer to read a nicely typeset PDF most of the time. Uh-huh. If you if you have to do too much little twiddly stuff to make a web page look right, you're just fighting. You're just fighting with HTML and its design and its purpose. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The uh the nicely typed PDF I like for reading straight through. Yeah. This is just good. This this type of site is good for browsing through and, and research. I, I think that's yeah. the difference between reading and researching. Yeah. I, I do not want to read Homer online. I absolutely want the dictionary I used to look up words in Homer online. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think that about wraps it up. It's... Uh, Last word on Kaylin for me is go ahead and take a look at it. Even if you're not that interested in uh, engineered languages, it's a very... She she took an interesting concept and actually implemented it very well. Well, there's all sorts of stuff going on that has nothing to do with the verbs, which we focused on here. All of those things are still interesting and useful. Yeah. Uh, you, You can look at... Yeah, I should I should mention a little bit, you know, she has she uses uh possessed pronoun forms. And it's a complex hierarchy of animacy, all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of interesting yeah, all stuff sorts there. Of, um many ideas to usefully pilfer to stick into your own conlang. Yeah, there's a lot of different stuff you can you can attach and it's all it's not verbose like some of the PDFs like we've looked at. <laughs> it's very um it's very light description and just heavy examples. Um so I think that's about all I'll say about it, but it's just I just recommend going to the site and looking at it. Um yep. Let's see. I didn't choose a feedback because I am lazy. <laughs> But we've so I, I will tell the listeners that when I logged on to Skype to record, George was working on his own language feverishly. So I think I think we can excuse a little confusion in the Conlangery podcast when the guy who runs it was working on his Conlang. <laughs> I was uh, I, I I was uh, yeah I was typing up some stuff for Iria, but. Um... Uh, we did get two two comments 
in quick succession from Copa de Sal on what episode was it? Um, mood. Yeah, on episode 18, Mood. Um, I think there was, at some point, I asked somebody to correct me on the pronunciations for um, for Norwegian pronouns. So he has listed here ye, a, a, e, me, and ma. Ma, I think. Ma. Sorry. I have trouble with ash sometimes when it's long. And then he has a few... um, He gave us a few tongue twisters, it looks like. Which he needs to record and give us a link to, because I'm not even going to try to pronounce these. I'll try I'll try the first one. I'll try uh a a a o eder o a an a o eder. Yeah, except I'm guessing those glottal stubs aren't there. I want to hear it from a native. Yeah, okay. Hey, record those and we'll listen to the recording and try to repeat them, okay? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we'll see we'll see if we can do that. But I'll I'll link to both of those comments in the show notes, but yeah, he he. These are obviously tongue twisters because they're you know nonsense. He gives us translations and they're nonsense and they're just you know practicing sounds. But yes, because uh, otherwise one often has occasion to say, "Does father understand that a nut is not mother?" <laughs> Uh, and George, what are you doing? I'm just looking at the the show's email real quick. Um, then that's about all. I'm really that's all all I have for feedback. But yeah, keep emailing us, by the way, and all that stuff. But uh, for now, I'm going to ask William any final words of wisdom. Nope, not this week. I'm going to. I need to stop asking that because nobody ever has wisdom. Uh, Shouted at you once in Klingon. That was worthwhile. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find all our episodes and show notes, as well as subscribe to our iTunes or RSS feeds through conlangery.conlang.org. You can also like our Facebook page or follow at conlangery on Twitter. If you would like to contact us with corrections, comments, questions, or suggestions, or even suggest your own conlang as a feature, please email conlangery at gmail.com or call into our new voicemail line. 304-873-6281. We also have a handy suggestions form on our site. Our theme music was created by Xander Medeus. <laughs>